On the ledge, and I'm Jane Perone, your host. This is the podcast for people who find houseplants irresistible. You know what I mean. You're walking along, minding your own beeswax, and then suddenly you spot something in the window of a florist, a junk shop, or even one of those trendy clothing stores that sells houseplants now, and you know it has to be yours. I've added to my collection this week, and it's a little bit worrying because I don't quite know where I'm going to put all the new plants. But hey, that's a good problem, right? In fact, this week's episode, number 61, is the ideal episode to help me with this dilemma because I'm talking about grow lights, those wonderful inventions that can help you grow houseplants in parts of your dwelling that you never thought would be suitable, help you keep your succulents stocky rather than leggy during the winter off-season, and generally up your houseplant game. Plus, I have a Q&A about a Venus flytraps traps, a request for help from those of you who grow cannabis, and exciting news about upcoming episodes. I actually have to admit, I find the world of grow lamps anything but relaxing. There are so many different options, lights, systems, prices. I just don't know what I'm looking at or what I need. In the James Wong episodes, we heard James talking about how great the IKEA LED grow lamps are, but there is a whole world of grow lights out there incorporating all different kinds of lighting technology and indeed price points from a couple of quid or dollars right up to, well, hundreds. So I needed somebody who could really break this all down for me. And that's where Leslie Halleck comes in. She's a horticulturist based in Texas, and she's the author of a great new book published by Timber Press called Gardening Under Lights, The Complete Guide for Indoor Growers. This book really made me jump for joy because it breaks down in terms that even I can understand the pros and cons of the various forms of grow lights, how to use them on specific types of plants and basically everything you need to know to get started with your grow light journey. Whether you're an absolute beginner like me or somebody who's already dabbled with a few T5s and the odd LED. First, I wanted to find out what grow lamps can actually do for the average houseplant grower not to mention their plants. Well, you know, as urbanization continues to intensify, more people moving into urban environments, perhaps living in smaller spaces, staying in apartments longer, uh, you know, many people are really craving the ability to bring some nature indoors or even just cultivate collections of plants. You know, that's becoming yet again intensely popular. Well, Even as a horticulturist, my home is incredibly dark. I don't have near enough light in my home to grow what I want to. So, and that's the case for many people indoors, um, whether they want to grow foliage plants or they want to get into food production. So, what grow lighting of of varying scales allow you to do is cultivate plants indoors 12 months out of the year, or for seasons that you may not be able to keep them outdoors in spaces where you traditionally wouldn't have enough light. So I find that grow lighting is useful from the level of somebody wanting to keep one 
Pilea pe- peperomioides, you know, Chinese money plants, so so trendy right now, alive in their apartment or dorm room, up to people who really want to do more food production, you know, that want to grow tomatoes inside, um, you know, or or you know, keep an orchid uh, in bloom. So it really. It runs the scale from keeping individual houseplants and African violets and foliage and orchids up to more intensive production. So it, it, it can be useful to you no matter where, what level that you're keeping plants or that you're starting. Let's just go on to talk about light. Now, all light is not equal, as I seem to be uh, learning from reading your book. Can you just explain a bit about what kind of light house plants or plants generally need in terms of making photosynthesis work and how that's offered by grow lights. Sure. And that's one of the topics that I try to digest, not dumb it down, but make it a little cleaner and simpler to understand. Because as you've said, you know, light science, it it can be intimidating. It's a big topic. And the ways in which it's commonly addressed in some of the publications that are available, really, in my opinion, aren't relevant to the home gardener. So I, I do go into explanations of how plants use light versus how we as people use lights. And that's how I break down the difference between the lights that you're generally going to use in your home for visual brightness versus the light that's meaningful to plants. Plants see light differently than people see light. And there are certain wavelengths of light um, that are required in order to generate photosynthesis, which is what you're trying to get for a plant. For people, we need brightness so we can see. Plants need a spectrum of light that's conducive to driving photosynthesis. And generally, blue and red light within the visual light spectrum are going to be the two types of light that are most efficient at driving photosynthesis, red light specifically, which is why you will see um, a lot of LED, what I call dual band LEDs that blend only red and blue light to give you what? pink pink or purple lights. So that's why you see a lot of, of grow lights that emit a pink colored light because what they're trying to do is um, most efficiently drive growth for that plant with, with red and blue light. So certainly the spectrums of light that are going and the amount of light that can be used by a plant um, is going to be different uh, in different grow lights depending on how they're manufactured and how they're calibrated. So there will be differences between the light that you use to brighten up your kitchen versus a grow lamp that you will buy to most efficiently dry photosynthesis or get a plant to flower and fruit. So that's generally why uh, horticulturists such as myself will recommend that you go to actual plant grow lights versus just using the lamps that you might have in your house. Not to say that there isn't some crossover use of some of those lights. The, the instinct just think, well, I can just stick it under this light bulb and it's going it, to it's gonna help it in some way or other. And I guess it might do. But if you really want to get a, a bit of efficiency going here, then the grow light is the way to go. Right. And there, the, the other issue that gets complicated with grow lights, it seems to me, is that there are so many, there seem to be so many different options out there. Fluorescent tubes, LED lights are now coming onto the scene. Are LED lights so kind of good and efficient and excellent that we're going to be very soon just talking about LED lights? Are, are they going to take over from everything else or, or are there still pros and cons? 
Well, certainly the the LED manufacturers hope that that's the case, but I actually (laughs) go into quite a bit of depth about the actual lighting, different types of lighting and gear in my book, specifically because I want people to understand the the benefits of each different type of light. So yes, LEDs um, for plant lighting, especially vertical farming and things like that have really exploded in the last few years. So there's a lot of focus on LEDs, um, but there's also a lot of people who don't understand plant growth jumping in the game of manufacturing. LEDs. So there's also uh, a very wide array of quality of, of you get what you pay for in the LED market. So uh, probably some of your listeners who are a little more experienced in this category will probably speak up and say, yeah, I've bought a bunch of LEDs that were garbage, you know, that didn't do a good job for me and I've had to buy new lights. So, you know, you have to be careful with quality. Um, certainly, though, the advances in LEDs, that's where a lot of people are putting money. However, just as with LEDs, some of the conventional types of grow lighting of what I call HID, high intensity discharge lighting, um, high pressure sodium lamps, metal halide lamps, ceramic metal halide, um, things like that are also advancing in efficiency. And as of date are often more efficient um, at plant growth than LEDs. So that's not to say that LEDs don't continue to get better and better. They do. But they'll also cost you a bit more because you're paying for what? some of that innovation, some of that R&D that's being done by the manufacturer. So you'll find that some of the the LEDs, more powerful LEDs, will actually cost you a bit more than, say, a really efficient high-pressure sodium grow lamp or um, LEC, a ceramic metal halide lamp. So I would say that efficiency across the board of grow lighting is getting better. LEDs are generally in the forefront in terms of marketing and what people are seeing. And because of their size and low wattage capacity, they tend to be more versatile for home growers that maybe are are wanting to grow smaller groups of plants or individual house plants versus more intensive production. So, you know, pay attention to the quality, pay attention to where you're buying it from, and certainly keep an eye out for, you know, a lot of advances in technology with all types of grow lights, but but certainly LEDs, I think, are going to become more and more um, used by more home growers just because of their availability and, and ease of use at this point, for sure. As you say, we shouldn't discount all these other forms of grow lights that are still still I'm still very widely in use by uh, lots of growers. Can you just take me through those various different options that you've talked about and and, and explain the differences between them and the pros and cons? Yeah, so sort of what would be considered the old school uh, lighting options are HPS, high pressure sodium lamps, and MH, metal halide lamps. And um, HPS lamps have traditionally been used to extend photo periods in, say, greenhouse production um, and also to encourage uh, flowering. They produce a little more red light. Metal halide lamps uh, produce a cooler blue light, so they're often used for, for a lot of vegetative growth. So so let's take cannabis as an example sort of traditional cannabis growers would would grow their vegetative plants under metal halide cool light um setups and then switch them over to, to say an HPS lamp for a warmer light to induce flowering. So that's a very sort of old school common regimen that you would see with, with cannabis production and in greenhouse production of many other types of, of, of floriculture crops. Um, 
those lights are still in use and they're advancing as well in efficiency and, and HPS and, and MH lamps are classically very efficient, high, high efficiency options for grow lighting. And you can get them in varying um, uh, levels of electrical use. So home growers can still can use these lights. They're not just for industrial production. And then another really interesting development um, that is related to metal halide lamps are what we call CMHs or, or ceramic metal halide, also branded as LECs. These are lower wattage highlight output options that, um, my, for example, I use them, I have a garage garden and that's where I have all of my grow tents set up. And I'm using these CMHs or LECs. Um, they pull 315 watts, which is low for for a high output grow light. And I use them to grow tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers. So they put out enough light that you can get good flowering and fruiting on food crops. So that's a really cool advancement that's not an LED option, but that's very accessible to a general home gardener, you know, that wants to do things, say, in a grow tent, you know, in, in a few square feet of space. Um, and then, of course, uh, fluorescence. You know, I always still get the question, well, can't I just use shop lights? You know, the big T12 shop lights. And I always say, well, you can use whatever you want as long as you're willing to accept varying results, right? So you have okay results or great results. If you're going to use fluorescents, which are still a good option and they're good and they're affordable, um, definitely use the HOT5s. That's high output T5s. Those are going to be the most efficient fluorescent grow lamps. So you can still get really good high output of light with these and with, with moderate heat output. Okay. So still going to be great for, you know, germinating your seedlings and growing young transplants or, you know, supplementing light for salad greens, foliage crops, things like that, herbs that you might want to keep in the house. LEDs, boy, there's, there's a huge array of options with LEDs from little tiny LEDs that fit into your home lighting fixtures that are going to be good for, say, one or two plants, you know, an orchid plant or a, a, another house plant that, that you love, um, up to large HID, high, what they're calling HID LED rigs. So the, the LED fixtures are getting bigger and bitter, bigger to put out more and more light. So um, you really can run the gamut with LEDs from just single plant lights up to, you know, big rigs that you're going to put into a grow tent. One option that is sort of an advancement you'll see with LEDs are what they call HOT5 LED bars. And those basically replace your fluorescent tubes. You have a fluorescent fixture with your HOT5 fluorescent tubes. You pop that out and you pop an LED strip right into that fixture. So it essentially replaces the fluorescent. So you're going to see more of that technology. And that's the type of technology that really is most available to the mainstream gardener. But I encourage everybody to look at all of the different lighting options because just because they've traditionally been sold to cannabis growers, it's all the same science and it's all the same gear and you can use it to grow whatever else you want. This is an opportune moment in the interview just to drop in a little request to any of you who have tried growing cannabis indoors. I am planning a little special mini series about cannabis growing as it becomes legal to grow a few plants at home in several countries and parts of the world 
I'm increasingly fascinated by how cannabis industry has impacted the houseplant world and vice versa. And I'm hoping to talk to any of my listeners who would be prepared to tell me about how they got into growing cannabis, whether the houseplants came first or the cannabis came first, and how the two practices interweave with one another or otherwise. If you're interested, do drop me a line to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com and you can speak anonymously if you prefer. Back to Leslie so she can explain why she included details on cannabis growing in her book. Time is marching forward and attitudes are changing. And so, you know... That was that was a consideration when I wrote this book. Is that this, this book is not a cannabis growing book? It is a book. All of the science is there. All of the gear is there, and it can be used for whatever you want to grow. But I did, you know, think that it was important for those who are interested to get some basic information on that, and you know, have this be a way where there was a little bit of cannabis light, L I T E, that that you know, so to just maybe take the stigma away, so people who are curious, who who have no interest in growing it, maybe could just at least learn a little bit more about the plant itself because it's just interesting. So you know, I think that the conversation is going to continue and it's going to become more mainstream, but it's certainly not something that everybody needs or has to grow. For goodness' sake, you know, it's it's totally a personal choice. Um, and then obviously, as you say, there are legalities that have to be taken into consideration. And, you know, um, I, I, I even say in the book, you know, please make sure you understand the laws <laughs> where you live um, before you do this, because I'm certainly not endorsing that you do this if you live in a place that, that, that you can't. I certainly have neighbors, you know, trying to crawl over their fence on a regular basis to peek into my garage when I open the door, you know, because they're trying to figure out what I have going on in there. Those of you who are Patreon subscribers of $5 a month or more will be able to hear Leslie talking in more detail about the cannabis industry and grow lights in On the Ledge and Extra Leaf number 12, which is out now. She also talks in that extra episode about propagation and grow lights. So if you're not a subscriber, would like to find out more, check out my show notes at janeperone.com where you can catch up on all the information on Patreon and how you can help out the show. But now back to my chat with Leslie and on to the vexed question of ugly grow lights. I've had a, a flurry of emailed press releases about attractive grow lights, grow lights that you can kind of put into your living room and not feel like you're sort of living in a commercial greenhouse. Obviously, the companies are really kind of latching onto this now. It, obviously, that's a that's a hugely growing industry. Are they any good, those lights? I mean, can they really work effectively, these ones that kind of put style just as important as uh, substance? I would say... I'm very happy about this because I, I I consider myself to be style focused as well as scientific. <laughs> you know, I put a lot of thought into my living space and I want it to look attractive. And but I also understand the science of growing indoors, so it's that's been a frustration for me. In that I want pretty grow lights. I want grow lights that look nice in my living room and aren't embarrassing. You know, that don't look like my closet garden in my living room. That's been the challenge. And and we're really just right on the cusp of this. Um, I would say that there are some really good options out there. One lamp that I just purchased is from a company called Soltech, and they're doing nice LEDs that are very, very attractive and respectable for hanging anywhere in a living space. So that's that's one that I'm actually testing right now myself. Um, most of these kinds of lights are generally low-emitting low grow lights thus far. So most of them are not going to be tomato plant ready. 
if that puts that in perspective. So when you when you're trying to flower and fruit plants, it takes a lot of energy. And some of the lower light attractive um, lighting fixtures are not quite there yet, but they're perfect for supplementing light for your um, houseplants and your leafy herbs and and things like that. You know, that fiddly fig that you so desperately have to have and <laughs> you put it next to the window and you think there's enough light and there still isn't enough light. Those type of LED spotlights are perfect for for lighting those types of plant material. We are, we're probably going to progress, I would think in the next couple of years to the point where we have grow lights that are powerful enough for you to actually fruit things indoors, keep flowers and fruit on your citrus plants and flower and fruit those tomatoes, you know, indoors in a grow tender living room, in a living room space. Um, so we're almost there. We're not quite there yet, but definitely that's where the market's going. And that's where I'm encouraging many grow lighting companies to go because that's where I see desire and demand is, you know, I'm in an apartment and I want to have this tomato or citrus plant in my living room. I need enough light, but I don't want it to be ugly. So we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. And when it comes to using that grow light to, for that very purpose to kind of enhance the light, that's something like either some succulents or a fiddle leaf figures getting, how mm -hmm. do we know, uh, how how long do we leave it on in, during the day? Should that vary in in the different seasons of dormancy and growth? Is there is there an easy guide to know how long, or should we just leave it on? We'll put it on when we wake up and turn it off when we go to bed. Is it as simple as that? I wish it was as simple as that, but it's not. Okay. And that's why I, I do in the book go through lots of different plant material and provide some general recommendations for, for the length of, of lighting that you should provide with your supplemental light. But understand that, that everybody's space is going to be different. The amount of ambient light that you may have in your home or office will be different from your neighbor or a caller or a listener that you have. You know, So it really depends on how much light, ambient light you already have in that space and thus how much you need to supplement. If you have a dark space, you may be supplementing all of the light. And if that's the case, you may need to leave those grow lights on for, for a number of more hours. If you have a very bright space, but it's just not quite enough for what you want to grow, it may mean that you put that grow light on for three or four hours a day to supplement. It's just going to depend on how your plant is doing, if it's thriving the way that it should, and I do provide those kinds of recommendations, but it can get a little tricky with photo period and timing. So I, I hesitate to give you a one rule fits all, but the most general thing I could tell you is that for most of the plants that, that I keep indoors, whether they're succulents or herbs in sort of a moderate to low light environment, those grow lights stay on about 10 hours to 12 hours, depending on, on what I'm growing. Um, if you are growing inside a grow tent, for example, where you're providing all of the light that plant is going to grow, depending on the type of light you are using, you may need to run that light 14 to 18 hours to deliver enough volume of light. So it really is going to depend on a lot of different organic factors being the light you have in your space and the type of lamp that you're using. But what I've tried to do is connect those dots for you in my book so that you can piece together the pieces and parts that you need to use and want to grow in your type of space to give you a, a relatively good formula. Is there a danger that you can give a plant too much light and end up, and end up damaging it through 
too much exposure, either by having the light on too long or indeed by putting it too close to the light? Absolutely. Uh, Yes, you can burn things out. So, you know, plants have essentially a metabolism and, you know, they need a break. Most plants need a dark period where photosynthesis is not running. Because if you're running lights 24 hours, for example, on a plant, it's going to use resources much more quickly. It's going to, it's going to use water more quickly. You're going to, it's going to transpire and lose water through the plant more quickly. And unless you're able to replenish the, the water and nutrients quickly enough, then the plant keeps running without the energy to run, if that makes sense. So it can just ex- exhaust itself essentially because it's not getting the inputs it needs based on the speed that you're driving photosynthesis with all that, you know, continuous light. And some plants actually, tomatoes and peppers are, are, are a good example. You can grow peppers under 24 hours of light without really losing productivity. Tomatoes, on the other hand, if you grow them under 24 hours of light, you'll reduce productivity. So they just can't keep up with that, with that uh, rate of photosynthesis. Seedlings, for example, they need a lot of intense light. So you can place your grow lights three or four inches above your seedlings. They need that or else they're going to stretch and fall over. Okay, But as they grow and put on a couple of, of pairs of, of true leaves, you actually need to lift that light up and pull it a little farther away from those plants or you'll or you'll burn them because the rate at which they're using that light will slow down a little bit. And if you keep it too close to the plant, you'll burn. And then you have plants that that require different intensities of light from, from a full sun plant to a medium light plant to a low light plant. You know, put a fern, a low light fern under a, a very intense high pressure sodium lamp and you can fry it in 30 minutes, <laughs> you know. Um, the tomato under that lamp will be perfectly happy. So you also have to take into account the natural environment that the plant you're growing thrives in to determine how much light and how close that light needs to be. So, for example, you can use the same grow light for a low light plant and a, and a, and a full sun plant simply by moving that light closer or farther away from the plant. That makes sense. And would you recommend using timers for these things? Because yes. I don't know about you, but I mean, yes, <laughs> well, yes. It, it, if you just it could be tragic if you forget to turn it on for a couple of days and then your plant is unhappy. Yeah, timers are are sort of a standard add-on feature for most grow lights, and there's lots of different timers out there to choose from. From the really basic lamp timers that you use when you go on vacation to turn your lights on and off, you can use those on your grow lights. Um, higher powered grow lights might require a little more sophisticated timer. So yes, always use timers because you know I can there's so many things we have to remember in a day trying to remember to to leave your grow lights on for your seedlings exactly 16 hours every day is probably not going to happen and then you accidentally leave them on overnight a few times and you burn out some seedlings so yes timers are a very inexpensive simple tool that will make your indoor gardening much more successful and with the the smartphone being ubiquitous now, are there any kind of apps or programs you can use that will allow or or indeed products, grow light products that work with smartphones in terms of managing everything so you can be sitting at your office miles away and managing your system at home? Yeah, in fact, there's a couple of things and, and it's still emerging technology, but I just talked to a lighting company the other day who is working on 
yes, smartphone controlled LED lights that there's an app for. Right now, there are actually uh, timers that that you can use that there's an app for. So you can you can uh, plug your grow light into this timer that you sync up to um, on your home Wi-Fi, and you can control the timers. So that's actually a good sort of intermittent to- technology you can use right away. Is the are the are the lighting timers or the electrical timers that you can plug all sorts of things into and control from your smartphone. But but yes, we're we're getting we're getting to the point where there will be more of that technology available. So it's again it's 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 developing, but we're getting there. I think over here, talking to James Wong, who's a botanist uh, based in the UK, in a, a recent episode, he was talking about the effect that IKEA's grow lights have had on making this kind of a mainstream thing. I don't know what your opinion is on IKEA's the quality of IKEA's grow lights, but it's interesting to see how they're making people actually consider that grow lights, LED grow lights are a kind of an attainable option, uh, something that you can kind of get your hands on quite easily and set up at home. Yeah, we ha- we don't have those released here in the U.S. yet. That's been something I think they've they've threatened for a few years. I know that that's been available in in the U.K. and Europe, but not quite here yet. I think that it sort of falls into that category of very low light, you know, options that that are that are good for maintaining a small number of plants or leafy greens. They're not going to be very intense grow lights that they're providing just just yet. But I do think it does do a service in that it uh, it is. Um, making people aware that that this is an option, and it's also helping to make people aware of why they might be failing with plants indoors, which is which is one of the reasons I was asked to write this book because there is so much frustration with categories so popular such as succulents. You know, people buy them, they bring them indoors in three weeks, they have gone to mush because they've actually watered them, but there's not enough light indoors um, for the plants to, to sustain that way. And people want their plant collections. They want their succulents. They want their foliage plants. They want their orchids. And many people just don't have enough light. So I think that the thing that, that perhaps the IKEA products are doing is creating an entry point, certainly. For, for people and making them aware. It's just that we have to be careful not to, to over promise on expectations for what some of those smaller, lower powered lights can do. You know, they're, they're not going to give you fruiting tomato plants indoors, but, but some, some, some leafy greens and salad greens and foliage plants. Yes, they can help you maintain those for sure. It's interesting about the succulent craze because I, I'm sure that it's the same where you are. But over here where, you know, winters are quite long and dark, um, lots of mm. people buying succulents and, and uh, you just know that in winter you're going right. to end up with all these echeverias, which are about two yeah. foot long because they've <laughs> right, just right. stretched and stretched and stretched, trying right. to find light. Um, and I guess that's the, the peril of it. And, you know, we only have so many south facing windowsills to put these things on in winter. Right, right. Well, and even, you know, south facing window in winter is not the same thing as the south facing winter uh, window in summer and so light volume you know dramatically decreases so you know you just aren't going to be able to sustain things that you want and you know even next to a window i have grow lights right next to a window because you know just because you put a plant in a windowsill doesn't mean it's going to get enough light and i think that's what's confusing to a lot of new plant keepers you know or new succulent enthusiasts is they just don't have an understanding yet of of light volume you know of how much light plants really need and how much that light changes with every inch that you that you pull away from the window 
you know, how much light you lose. And is there, does the window itself um, cut out some of that blue and red light that plants need? Is there, is that kind of acting as a filter also? Yes. So when, when you have, uh, when trees provide shade or windows, you know, filter light, a lot of what often you lose is blue light. And when plants aren't getting enough blue light, they stretch, they get elongated. So that's why when you put a plant that prefers a little more sun into a shady spot, it, it stretches and elongates. You get that internode elongation, right? Because there's not quite enough blue light for that plant to maintain, you know, it's, it's more dense nature. So certainly when different types of windows will change the spectrum of light that enters your home. And that's not going to be something that most people are going to measure. If you're a total plant nerd like me, you're going to have a PAR light meter that's going to measure all of that for you. And you're going to know exactly what kind of light you have where, but that's generally not the sort of thing that most sane you know, residential home dwellers are going to have. So yes, there are ways you can measure that, that, uh, that light if you want to get geeky. And I, I talk about that. Um, so I give you that option if you want to do that, but yes, different windows can, can change not only the amount of light that you're getting, but the type of light. I mean, is that something that some of us, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm imagining you're probably going to have to throw down at least 50 bucks on one of 50 to 100 bucks on one of these things. But is that something that's kind of worth looking into as a gadget if to really get to grips with how much light you've got available? If you are windowsill gardening or countertop gardening and you're doing small collections of houseplants, no not going to be worth it to you. If, however, you decide to step up your game and you get a little bit more interested in this and you decide that you want to invest in some higher intensity lighting and maybe try to grow your tomatoes indoors, that sort of thing, you might want to do that. Now, what I what I could offer is that there are some lower technology, lower price light meters that you can sometimes find at the garden center, you know, that you can put outside that tell you whether you're getting full sun medium light or, or a shady location, you, if you sort of want to improvise, you can certainly try using one of those if you don't want to spend the money. But if you, if you like data, (laughs) you know, if you like (laughs) data, which I love data, um, I love style, but I also love data. Um, I find it really interesting because it allows you to measure all sorts of things that are going on with your ambient light, as well as exactly what you're getting from electrical grow lights. So it's kind of cool. So if you if you want to get geeky, but yeah, they'll cost you they'll cost you some scratch. They're not cheap, so right. you have to be serious about it. Yeah, I understand. Well, you know, I, I guess it's one of those things that you know plants are quite cheap. So some some people like yeah. to splash out on their gadgets. Sure, I guess, why but, not? Uh, why not? If you like technology, <laughs> it's a fun tool. You know. Take it out at parties, you'll impress everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Or run them away, one or the other. I don't know about you, but I am definitely going to be splashing some cash on some grow lights this autumn. Thanks so much to Leslie. You can find out more about Leslie online at lesliehallock.com. That's H-A-L-L-E-C-K.com. And she's on Twitter as at Leslie Hallock. And of course, as usual, my show notes are packed with more information about the things we've discussed in the show, plus links to where you can get the book. 
And now question of the week, which comes from Christopher. He wants to know about what to do with his Venus flytrap when the traps go black and die. Now, this happens regularly when the traps have closed about well, about two or three times, they get exhausted and they will die back. And hopefully as the plant grows, there'll be new traps forming to replace them. Obviously, if all the traps go black, then that's not a good sign unless it's the winter time and the plant is going into its dormancy period. Now, for more on Venus flytraps, I highly recommend that you listen to my episode number 32, in which I talk to Tom of Tom's Carnivores about these plants and get into all kinds of detail about how to look after them. But let's just address this specific issue of the traps. Now, this is one of those things that's a bit of a personal preference. I know from reading the classic carnivorous plant book, The Savage Garden, by the much-respected carnivorous plant expert Peter D'Amato, he recommends trimming off the traps once they are black and fully dead. Why? Well, it's aesthetic, obviously. In part, it looks better if those dead traps aren't there. Plus, also, there is a risk that those traps as they die, go a bit mouldy and that mould could spread to the rhizome. So there is a bit of a housekeeping issue around it too. But there are those who prefer to let the traps just die back and disappear into the soil over time. And that approach is is fine too. I'd say in the wintertime, if you've got dying traps, it's more advisable to get rid of them because the mould is has more of a chance to take hold in those kind of cooler conditions. You can gently pull them off but I would highly recommend getting in there with a pair of nail scissors to remove them this way you can cut cleanly make sure the scissors are clean and you can stick them under a naked flame if you want to make sure they're sterile before you start and they snip them off and that way you won't be pulling away at the main plant do be very careful because it's very easy to trigger the traps accidentally doing this job. And the problem with that is that you will exhaust your traps very quickly if they are triggered when there isn't any food inside. Another issue that comes up sometimes is people ask whether they can remove the husks of the insects that have been caught in the trap. Well, mm, yes, if you do this, you're going to probably trigger the trap again and the plant's going to get tired because there's not going to be anything in it. I tend to leave the husks for this reason because it's just not worth the bother. Obviously, in the wild, wind, water and other things will gradually remove the husks via the force of nature. In the greenhouse, this isn't going to happen and the husks will sit there, but they really don't make that much of a difference. I mean, man, if you're bothered by uh, the sight of some dead insects, then probably carnivorous plants are not for you. I do hope that helps, Christopher. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, then do drop me a line to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com or through the Facebook page On The Ledge Pod. Or you can drop me a message on Instagram where I'm j.l.perone. podcast leaves you itching to have more chats about houseplants and your friends and family just don't understand your obsession 
may I recommend that you pop along to the Facebook group for On The Ledge. It's called Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge and it's a wonderfully friendly, warm community for anyone who loves houseplants and this podcast. When you sign up, just remember to answer the two questions that pop up on joining and you will be a member before you know it. If you've got a question, want to show off your plants or generally shoot the breeze about indoor gardening, it's the place to be. That wraps up the show for this week. I'll be back next Friday for more houseplant fun and frolics. finish with a quote from the late great gardener Christopher Lloyd who writes in his excellent book The Well-Tempered Garden sometimes the reader may be incited to exclaim what a lot of trouble or who wants to go through all that but however labour-saving you make your hobby you will never get more out of it than you put in now and again it seems worth taking that extra bit of trouble that brings in its train some rather exciting results you heard in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, Rasham Pidity Bacara by Samuel Corwin, and Oh Mallory by Josh Woodward. All licensed under Creative Commons. See my website for details. Mm-hmm.